0: Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we come before You desiring to have Your intercession by Your Spirit aid us as we look at this portion of Scripture in Genesis. We pray, O God, that You would help us to receive Your Word with gladness, demonstrating the fruit of our salvation and such. And pray that You would aid us to understand Your Scripture that we might be conformed into the image of your Son. We so pray that the Spirit would aid us to do this, and that also, Lord, that you would grant great unction today, that your Spirit may work in our hearts and our minds and our souls, that we might be made the better as a result. We so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Genesis chapter 17, verses one through fourteen, When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be gone to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, as we've been looking at this particular section of Scripture and gaining some basic themes surrounding what's going on with God and Abraham, we find that the Almighty God comes and speaks with His servant. He requires of His servant faithful obedience to His revealed will. Being perfect, as you recall, means to walk blamelessly to be like the God who he communes with. God changes his name to Abraham. He explains the promise of the covenant. It is everlasting, literally forever and ever. And he requires of him in this covenant to give him a sign. In this particular aspect or in this administration of the covenant of grace... God requires that the sign of regeneration mimic that which is bloody. Circumcision is a promise made to Abraham, a token as a sign or mark, in this case, in his flesh. The object lesson and the significance given to Abraham, blood and procreation. Blood in that the cutting of any covenant, which the word covenant means to cut, requires blood. And procreation, the particular sign in this administration, is placed upon the procreative organ of the male, the federal head of the home, demonstrating that every time the seed passes through, it is going through the cutting of the covenant. The pact... The sacrifice, the foreskin, all of these demonstrate what God desires of his elect servant. If they reject that, God says they will be cut off. They break his covenant. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen that God is a covenant-keeping God. That God is a covenant-keeping God that works within the family. That covenant signs are to be placed all on, all in the family by covenant keepers. The covenant signs don't save people. The covenant signs are tokens and pledges of what God's will is and what His Word states. The covenant sign is a demonstration of of regeneration. And the covenant sign demonstrates the eternal nature of all of God's covenant promises. Now let's deal with a couple of other theological applications of what's going on in Genesis concerning the covenant sign. Covenant signs are given to members of the visible church. There is a distinction in the scriptures Between the elect from all ages, which includes those who are in heaven, which is the invisible church, and the covenant community that is on the earth, alive, that do things together in the local meeting house, which is the visible church. The covenant community may have, and certainly does have, the elect in that community, but it also has the non-elect, in that visible community. Children, parents, all those in a household are members of the visible church in all ages as a result of the headship, the federal headship of the family. When stating that children are members by their parents' covenant, there are three things to be reminded of, three things to understand. First, children of parents that profess faith are members of the covenant of grace through their parents' covenant. But their right to that covenant is, and interest in that covenant is, where God engages himself equally to be a God to them and their seed. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. That is the language of Genesis chapter seventeen, and that is the language that is mimicked throughout the New Testament by Peter, among other places, in Acts chapter two and throughout the early church. Genesis seventeen eight says, I will be their God. He makes that as a promise. In Acts two thirty nine it says, For the promises to you and to your children. Into all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Now that isn't a reference to just people who are being saved, it's specifically quoting and explaining and expositing Joel. And Joel is talking about the dispersed Israelite tribes that are being gathered together, in which right there on the day of Pentecost, they're actually hearing in their own language from different parts of the world. Glorification of God and the good news that the gospel brings. The same language that is found in Genesis 17 that we've been studying is found at Acts. And the problem oftentimes that arises is that if there has been a shift from the family to individuals, then that kind of language shouldn't exist anywhere in the New Testament. We should never hear, at any time, that anything is going on with households, or covenant communities, or families. Never. Rather, we should hear about individuals. And we don't hear about individuals. What we do find, is we find covenant federal heads of their families and their households being engrafted into the church, as we'll see. Secondly, there are two seeds that are mentioned in this passage in Genesis 17. And that's coupled with the same instruction that Paul instructs us that there is, one, an elect seed, and two, that there is a church seed. There is a double aspect to the covenant of grace in this way. External and outward, and internal and inward. And because... The covenant makes the church. There is an inward and outward membership in church estate that way. There is an outward Jew, as Paul says, and there is an inward Jew, as Paul says. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. Does he not say and explain it in this way, are not all Israel, i.e. the elect that are of Israel, i.e. the church seed? Not everybody who is elect is necessarily going to heaven. The idea is that they are in the church, but they're not elect. Are not all Israel that are of Israel? The the apostle says that it belongs to them. Now, these are the people who are not elect, but they're in the church. Paul says it belongs to them, the adoption, the covenant the promises, all of the external aspects of what the church is about. God accounts them as his children. He accounts them with the children of their house and their family. They are the children of the church. And accordingly, they have the promises belonging to them in respect to that outward administration. Although they're not children of internal adoption, to whom belong the promises of effectual and special communication of saving grace. They are, however, partakers of the outward administration of the covenant. And it is it's as clear as day to read that in the book of Romans, in throughout all of the scriptures, that many who are inwardly, or with respect to the inward covenant, saved, also commingle in the visible church with those who are not saved or really are children of the devil. Outwardly, in respect of the outward covenant, they are, however, children of God. For example, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says, I have brought up children, and yet he calls them rebellious. In the next verse, they are called my people, by outward covenant. And yet, they are worse, according to God, than an ox or an ass. Now, how could that be? In Deuteronomy 32, they are called sons, and yet they provoke God to revengeful wrath, the text says. And children, and yet without faith, and look as some may be externally dogs, according to God, and yet internally believers as the women of Canaan. Ah, now you have a complete reversal when Jesus talks to her, correct? He says to her in Matthew 15, verse 26, You Canaanites are dogs. And yet, she is the one who has faith, and the Jews who have rejected him are called by him children. Why are the Jews children and the Canaanite woman who has faith a dog? Well, the reason, because many might be externally in the covenant, in respect to the external aspects and administration of it, and yet internally, not saved. And as we see throughout the scriptures, there are some who are not part of the external administration of the covenant, and yet internally, such as the Canaanite woman, saved. We see that in the purest of churches, that that they are called saints, saints, that they are called faithful, that they are called children of God. Read any of the New Testament letters. Paul says to the saints, the church, the outward gathering of the people of God. Yet, we know that there are no churches who have all of their people as believers and only that and everyone is saved past any point of any kind of presumption with all assurity. In respect of the visible church and outward covenant profession, They are outwardly or federally saints, but many times they're inwardly and really unsaved. When one says that children are in the covenant and they're church members, the meaning is not that they are always in the inward covenant and inward church members who enjoy the inward and saving benefits of the covenant of grace, but they are in the external and outward covenant and therefore outwardly church members. To whom belong privileges? Privileges of the covenant. God may take the children into an outward covenantal status, which is sufficient to make them church seed in that way, or members of the church, although he doesn't receive them into the inward privileges of the covenant, in bestowing upon them saving grace or power to profess it. That might be true. That's why, in the book of Hebrews, there is so much about apostasy, Hebrews 4, 4-6 to For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. These are people who have been in the outward administration of the covenant but not in the inward administration of saving grace. People, thirdly, often question what this outward covenant is and what these seals actually do and under which proved children are meant here. The knowledge of it is very pleasing. It's exceedingly excellent. And I want to give you a short taste of it because of the special promises that God makes to our children. The outward covenant consists chiefly of three special promises to children. First, the Lord so ties himself to them that they shall be called by his name, or his name shall be called on them. Isaiah 63 and verse 19 says, They shall be called the sons of God. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, they are called the people of God. In Deuteronomy twenty nine twelve to 13 that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God, and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you, just as he had spoken to you, and just as he had sworn to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even in Ezekiel, chapter 16 and verse 8. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. They may not be sons and people really and savingly, but God will honor them outwardly at least with his name. And with his privilege, and they shall bear his name, and they will be called by his name, and they would consequently be accounted by others that way, and be reckoned with the number of the visible church and people. Just as one that adopts a young son, he tells the father, if he acts well towards him when he has grown up and he's mature, he'll possess all the inheritance itself, but yet in the meanwhile, he shall have favor as an adopted son, to be called his son, and to be of his family and of his household, and so he is reckoned among the members of his house. That's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and following. Secondly, the Lord promises that they shall, above all others in the world, have the means of doing them good and of conveying of the special benefits of the covenant. God doesn't make that promise to everyone. They shall be set apart above all the people in the world to enjoy these special benefits of remission of sin, of power against sin, of eternal life, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, They will have all of these things unless they refuse them. Think about the way that Paul deals with the Jews. Think about how he deals with them. If it's so right that only the actual saved people are in covenant with God, Paul is exceedingly wrong in what he says in Romans about the Jews. He asks the question, what privilege has the Jew? Now, his answer, according to a baptistic mindset, should be, not at all. That's what he should say. Absolutely nothing. But he says, much in every way. He says, much in every way. The advantage by circumcision, is by nature and under wrath and sin, for upon that ground, the apostle makes the question, and he answers it, much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the Word, the promises, the covenant, which are the ordinary means of saving grace and eternal good. Now, others hear the Word, but those in outward covenant enjoy it by covenant and promise. And they should be sought after, which is why Christ forbids His disciples to first go and preach to the Gentiles. That's why he tells them not to. Where are they supposed to go? They are supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. And again, he himself tells the woman of Canaan that he came not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew chapter 15 and verse 24. And although he bids his disciples to go and preach to all nations, yet it's said in Acts 3.26, To you
1: first,
0: God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And there he's talking about the Jews. To you, he first sent Christ. Because you are the children of promise. You are the children of the covenant. Therefore, you repent and be converted. That's the way the covenant works. Do not resist and refuse Christ, for he has first sent Christ to you to bless you and turn you from your iniquities, and the promise is full and fair. That's why in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks quite a bit about the way Israel works with the stump and the natural branches in which the Gentiles are not created into a new tree, but grafted into the same stump, the same covenant. Now, if they don't remain in unbelief and refusing grace and Christ when it's offered, they will be grafted in. For God's able to do it and He will do it. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So he says that about them. And the reason why the Lord gave his people up to their own counsels, it was because, quote, my people would have none of me after the means of grace have been given to them for their good. How are they? Why does God call them? These people who, who are in an outward, external relationship covenantally with their God. How does he call them holy? By inward holiness? No. Many of them were inwardly unholy, both parents and children, but holy in the idea that they are set apart. They're externally sanctified by a special means of holiness. That's why, as Isaiah 5.7 says, the men of Judah are called God's pleasant plant. In other words, they're planted into the root and fatness of the church, and therefore had all the means used for their further special good. What could be done to my vineyard that has not been done? God says. Though the word and the gospel may come to the heathen as well as the church member, it doesn't come to the heathen by way of covenant as it does to those in the church. Everything that happens to those in the church is by way of covenant privilege. The heathen do not have any promise of mercy beforehand, as church members do. It doesn't belong chiefly to them, but only to the children of the covenant and the children of those who are promised such things. And so it also follows that God never cuts off the seed of his servants from the special benefits of the covenant until they have had the means to positively reject it before him, and then he will ultimately, as he says in Genesis 17, cut them off. And so the Jews, who are made the pattern of what God will do to all Gentile churches, as Romans 11 shows us, were never cast off until by positive unbelief they provoked the Lord to break off by rejecting and refusing the means of their eternal good and the gospel of grace. The Lord promises, promises grace to his people. He promises that they shall have his heart by special grace and mercy. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord. The heathen do not have that promise. That is to the covenanted members of the church. There is no promise to do that for anyone outside the visible church. Those outside the visible church have promised to them no hope of salvation. The promise belongs to those of his church, among whom usually and ordinarily he works this great work, leaving them to his own freeness of his secret grace, his secret mercy, to work this way on whomever he wants to work with when he wants to do it. No one in the church can exclude himself. No one in the church can remove himself from the covenant that he has been placed under. They should look for and pray for grace. And this is God's covenant, that the Redeemer shall come out of Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's Romans 11. It's not the Old Testament. For the covenant of God does not only work in this way, if you believe you will have grace, but also, I will circumcise your heart, I will take away the stony heart, I will turn away ungodliness from you, I will enable you to believe. So what then is the outward aspect of this covenant? A man's entrance into covenant is not only by actual and personal profession of faith, as some say, because God's covenant runs a rung higher on that ladder. He enables them to believe, and so makes that profession in them, and that very outward covenant is not merely conditional, but there's something absolute in it. It follows that it is a great mistake of some who think that covenant signs only seal Conditionally, if you believe thus, and thus will happen. The outward covenant being, as they say, very conditional that way. But the aspects of the covenant, as Paul says, are real things. They mean something positively. They are absolute. If those things didn't mean something positively by God, then, as John Owen said the last, as last week as I quoted him, confirming the covenant would never take place. The Lord was no more in covenant with church members than with pagans and heathens, if that's the case. It's not just if you believe you're saved. God's grace is more extensive to that. It's farther than that because it reaches the umbrella of the visible church. What circumcision once did, what all covenant signs do, is seal the promises to the people. Even to infants, the seal is to confirm the covenant. The covenant is that God outwardly owns them. And they, in turn, own the kingdom of God. He reckons them among his people and children within his visible church and his visible kingdom. This kingdom, he says throughout the scriptures, that he'll prune, he'll cut, he'll dress, he'll water, he'll improve them. That's what he promises to his outward, visible church. And in that, he will demonstrate eternal good to them in special grace and saving mercy, which they shall have unless they refuse it, unless they resist it. That's why it's so interesting in the way that just Jesus deals with little children. Matthew 19 and verse 14, But Jesus said, Get the little children away from me, because we're only talking about individuals who profess faith in the New Testament. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. He says, but Jesus says, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. It's not a baptism issue. It's not a circumcision issue. It's a covenantal issue. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. How are little children receiving the kingdom? Well, these are parion. These are brethos, These are the Greek words for little babies that are carried in the arms and given... To the Jewish Messiah, the Messianic Rabbi, who blesses them because literally, the text says in the Greek, that they own the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish women were taking their covenant children and they were bringing them to the Messianic Rabbi who was ushering in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples were stopping them because they were thronging upon Jesus and Jesus was displeased that they were forbidding them. And then he says, whoever doesn't enter this way, whoever is not given up covenantally, will by no means enter it. Well, there are some applications of these concepts that God is giving Abraham in Genesis 17 that are seen throughout all of the Bible concerning the inclusion in the covenant and the partaking of the principles of grace. The children of believing parents, even of us Gentiles, now under the gospel, are included by God within the covenant of grace, as well as Abraham's or David's seed within that covenant of theirs. Abraham is our father, the father of the faithful, in the name of all his seed. That is the primary and fundamental ground of this great privilege taught by the church in every age that we being Abraham's seed as Galatians 3.29 as well as the Jews and having the same covenant are heirs of the promise and so of that promise which was made to Abraham and the Jews I will be your God and of your children the same promise made to Abraham um, is made to us That was not just Abraham's particular privilege and an honor for him, knowing full well, as we discussed last week, that Abraham is the father of the faithful. If we are to be faithful, if we are to walk blamelessly, then we mimic the same kind of faith, the same kind of actions, the same kind of understanding as Abraham did. If we are Abraham's seed, we take the whole promise collectively made to him and us. I will be your God and of your seed. We as Gentiles do not have some part of his privilege as if we have some lesser extent to what he has. Rather, his promises are our promises. Abraham and the Jews' privilege, also that they should have the promise to all generations, is our privilege. For 2,000 years, the covenant belonged to them and was entailed by them so that after the flesh, Christ should come to them. Romans 4, 5. And that that they should be the root of our covenant and we are engrafted in on them as they are the natural branches. Romans 11. And out of that root, if some disbelieve, if some reject Him, then they're broken off and thrown away. That is why when we get to the New Testament and Luke who is a very careful historian, Luke uses particular words. He uses particular words like with and 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 so that are so particular in his Greek construction of his sentences, when you study that in Greek that way, you can't miss his particular and careful nature when he's dealing with the text. Now Luke, the historian, would have certainly understood knowing that in his gospel, in writing to Theophilus, says that he has done great search and and great study to set down a perfect account of everything that's going on concerning Christ and the early church, that once he gets to Acts, that he get it right. And not only does he get it right, but he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us the inspired word. And what do we find there? We find the same things in his gospel... And in Acts, as we find throughout all of the Old Testament, that God is still dealing with households and families. If that is changed, then we should never see any of that in any of the Gospels and in any of the book of Acts, much less the rest of the New Testament. Think of Zacchaeus. Christ enlarges his covenant to Zacchaeus' family. This day salvation came to this individual, no, this house inasmuch as he is the son of Abraham. Not just that Zacchaeus was saved himself personally, but Christ reasons that his house should be saved also, and so the covenant is placed on him and his house, but he, because he's the father of his family, and now he's a believer. In the same way, Luke makes particular mention of a certain number, interestingly enough, of Gentile households that are brought in covenantally. The the gospel is preached to a Gentile household or master of the family. So when Paul preached to the jailer in Acts 16, he asked, what shall I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then he adds, you and your house. As Christ published the covenant with these promises that are annexed to us Gentiles as well, they're a comfort to us. The jailer is the master of his family. And by his privilege, so he believes, and the covenant umbrella goes over his household. Listen to Luke's particular use of language in Acts 16.34. The gospel was preached to him. He believed, and he's rejoicing. His whole household is baptized, and listen to what Luke says. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. And then they were all baptized. What's the deal with that? Here's a Gentile who believed, but his whole household was baptized. They all received the sign of the covenant. So it said with the centurion in Acts chapter 10. He was a devout man fearing God, he and all his house. So Lydia, and all her house. So the household of Stephanus. And even perhaps, as intimated in some of the phrases that we see in the New Testament, the church in your house. Our faithfulness, your faithfulness, as a federal head to the promises, is seen in your walking blamelessly to do these things, and to keep covenant with God. Never to excommunicate members of your own family by excluding them from covenant privileges. You have no right to do that. You have no right, not even as a, as a non-officer in the church, to excommunicate anyone. And second, you either have to believe or not believe God's promises. If Abraham is really your father, and families are little churches, Abraham's family was the church in those days, did you have the same kind of faith that he does? God chose families to convey the covenant blessings. Even when it was national among the Jews, this was the way that the covenant was kept. Me and my house, Joshua says. See? The federal head and his household will serve the Lord. David says the same thing in Psalm 101. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. And when we find the fulfillment that is in Christ, the institution which consists of many believers meeting in one place for public worship, yet still remains, a church is still much like what families are to be. And we are even engrafted into that were engrafted into his covenant and the covenant nature runs through that channel. Abraham's family had servants that were Gentiles. And if they had children, those children had the covenant sign placed on them. Abraham is the father of his house. He's the federal head of his house. And even the servants, as Paul says in Ephesians, are part of the household. As forerunning pledges and types that both we and our children, who are Gentiles and strangers, were engrafted into this covenant, those privileges are held out to our children as well. That in Abraham the Gentile seed, as well as Abraham's own, should be blessed in him. And all of this is ratified and completed in the work of Jesus Christ. It's confirmed in him. It's not overthrown. It's not taken away. It's confirmed. And thus we see how God works and what He will do and had been doing, even up to that point to Genesis 17, what he had been doing with all of the people before him, including Noah, whose house was a little church, including Adam, who was the priest of the garden, of his family, and so with Abraham, now for us forever, as an everlasting covenant. So we too look to the Father of our faith to mimic and be blameless before the Lord, who we call our God as well. Let's pray. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you so much that you are our God, in which we have been engrafted into the natural root, and we have the covenant privileges as well. Different and the people that live next door, different than other nations around the world, special in that we should run after these things, knowing full well that Christ is displeased when we don't. We ask, O God, that you would aid us and help us and strengthen us, that we might do your will and follow after you with our whole heart, that with our minds we might serve you, we and our children, Forever. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog,